Father, thank you for promising to send us the Spirit who will guide us into all truth. Would you open our hearts to see the truth more clearly, to understand it a little more deeply, to be refreshed and inspired, and to practically be led and empowered to live a different life. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I want you to imagine for a second that this afternoon a letter comes in the mail and you wait until tonight to to bring in your mail and you bring in your mail and as you go through the letters, one of them looks a little strange and you realize that it is a letter. It is a letter that is summoning you to join Putin's forces in Russia. He's drafting you into his military, and you are now going to have to serve in the Ukrainian front. You're going to have to go to war. What are some of the emotions that you would be feeling knowing that you got this letter from a guy like this? Shaking. I see, I see head shaking. <laughs> what was it? It's a scam? Well, let's pretend you live in Russia and you get this letter. Okay, yeah, it would be a scam if it was here. Uh, but if you lived in Russia and you got this letter, what would be some of the emotions that would be going through your, your mind? What would be some of your responses? Fear? What else? Fear is the main one. It's wrong. <laughs> Can't do it. Won't do it. What was it? Flee, run as far away as I can, get away from this. I I just, I can't do this. Well, this may sound like a preposterous idea, but this is something that a young man by the name of Franz Hazel, actually he wasn't that young, he was 40 years old. Franz Hazel faced this one Sabbath evening, he brought his mail in and he got an envelope. And this envelope summoned him to serve in the Nazi army with a man named Hitler. Now, he had hoped that this wouldn't happen. He was 40 years old. He had two children at the time. During the war, he was able to come home, and they ended up with three children. But at the time, he had two children. He was 40 years old. But every able-bodied man was being called into battle. And so Franz had to serve in the Nazi army. Now, his boy, when his uniform came, there was a belt that came. And the belt said on it, God is with us or something like that. And he said, wait a second. So maybe, maybe Hitler's not such a bad man. He thinks that God's with us. And Franz said, no, son, no, he's not. This is not okay. Well, as he had worship with them, he read from Psalm 91 with them the last time before he was going to be shipped off to war going off to boot camp and then to war. He'd actually served in World War I, interestingly enough, and this was before he had gained his faith. He became a Seventh-day Adventist pastor later after World War I. Uh, and before World War II, he'd been serving as a pastor. And now he's drafted into the army. And as they're gathered together for worship, this was his prayer. I want you to note what his prayer, the content of his prayer. He said, please be with us, Father. We talked last week about how the, the Babylonians thought, gods don't dwell with, a fl- with flesh. They're not with us. Please be with us, Father. Help me to be true to my faith, even in the army. Help me to be true to my faith, even with all the pressures, all the, the extreme situations that I'm going to face in the army. Can you see some similarities with Daniel's experience? Help me to be true in a a foreign situation. And I actually uh, was going to put the last part of the prayer at the end, but I'm probably going to forget it at this point, so I'll tell you right now. And then he said, and help me not to have to kill anybody. Help me not to have to kill anybody. That was the end of his prayer. So Hans went off to boot camp. And as he went off to boot camp, right away he was facing a lot of different challenges. But before we get into that, think about the life of Daniel. Think about the challenges that Daniel faces. He went off taken captive into a foreign land. And last time, which was two weeks ago, we talked about the dream that he is, goes and interprets. And we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar, what were some of the emotions that Nebuchadnezzar was facing? Do you remember? He was troubled. He couldn't sleep. He was anxious as he was there in his bed. He was really alone, troubled. He couldn't sleep. He was anxious. He was searching for answers. He ruled his closest people and the entire nation and the world around him by punishment or by bribery. 
which meant that he was unloved. His subjects were motivated by fear or greed, and he was suspicious of his closest counselors. He was all alone, even his closest counselors. He said, I think that you're gaining time. I think that you really have something you're out to get me. I don't think that you're on my side. He was in the loneliest position, potentially, in the entire world. Well, he was also rageful. He used force for self-preservation. And then we concluded by noting this, Daniel 2, verse 29. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. Daniel has sought the mercies of God with his companions, with his friends, and we talked about how important that is to do when we feel lonely like Daniel would have felt. And God has revealed to him the dream, and when he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, God knew what you were thinking about as you lay there in your bed. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what will come to pass after this. Do any of you have questions like that right now? Like, what's going to happen a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? What's the world going to look like? It seems like all this conflict, all these things going on. What is going to happen after this? This was what was spinning around in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. We talked about how, in actuality, even though Nebuchadnezzar was the one who had taken captive the, the Israelites and had taken the, the implements from their God and put them in the museum of his temple in order to parade people by to say, we conquered Yahweh. Even though he was that type of king who had made Daniel a eunuch and had forced him into his service, God showed up for him. God showed up to him and revealed to him a secret. And we, we saw that God reveals secrets to who? John 15 says, to his friends. I have called you friends, and so I have made known to you. I have made known secrets to you. So that's where we concluded last time. But we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to read about this dream. Now, finally, Nebuchadnezzar is reminded of the dream, and Daniel tells us what this dream is all about. He says this, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Can you imagine that? Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A, a pretty incredible dream that Nebuchadnezzar had there as he's there on his bed. Now, let's just think about this for a minute. As we think about this man that was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, as we think about this dream that's revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, what is the reality of these metals? If we're just talking about these metals, what, what do you notice about the metals that are in this statue? What was it? They're decreasing in value. Right? So gold is super valuable. Silver, not so much. Bronze, less. And then we get down to iron, and eventually we get down to the feet of iron and clay. So not so valuable. But at the same time, I want, to know, I want you to notice something else. Do you ever see somebody fashion a weapon out of gold? Have you ever seen a gold sword? Not so much, right? How about a silver sword? No. How about a bronze sword? In fact, the Greeks were known for being the bronze soldiers, the bronze warriors. They had bronze armor. They had bronze weapons. How about iron? Rome was famous for its iron spears, for using iron chariots, for being crushing others using their iron weapons. So you see that it also, while it decreases in value, and we see this literally as we're going to go into the interpretation, uh, but we also see that it's increasing its forcefulness, right? In these types of, of metals that we see here. But we also notice something else. Did you notice what the bulk of this was about? The majority of these verses, 
Okay, so the verses that I read were from verse 31 through verse 35. And 31 to 33 are really short verses that tell us, oh, there's a head of gold, there's the arms of silver, there's bronze. It gets into a little bit more detail with the iron and the iron mixed with clay. And then it gives us these two long verses about this stone that is cut out without hands and that comes and smashes the statue. Well, it's important that we recognize the, the value of this, this vision. And it was important for Franz, uh, as he was in the military, he actually knew this, this uh, by heart himself, and he knew this by experience. And um, there's something, okay, oh, I, I remember what I was going to say. Okay, I got a little distracted there. So one other thing about the metals and the stone. <laughs> I was talking until I remembered. Okay, so <laughs> there's something different. Did you notice that? When you get to the second half, which goes into all this detail about the rock, up until that, pl- that point, there is an image that is formed by what? Human hands. And, and there's the gold, there's the silver, and each of these things are, are part of one image. And then there's something entirely different. It's a stone cut out without hands that comes and smashes the statue. Well, Franz had to live a different life. In order to keep his faith in the army, he immediately went and told them he's a Seventh-day Adventist. And he asked to be a medic, and they said no. And so he said, well, I need to have the Sabbath off. And they said, okay, we could do that. You see, everybody else wanted Sundays off because they wanted to go to their Saturday night dances and they wanted to to go, I don't know, on Sunday, maybe church. And then he asked, he said, I also don't eat pork. I don't eat unclean meat, so I need help with this. And they said, well, you're going to have to go talk to the cook about that. So he went to the cook. And as he talked to the cook, you remember the Germans hated who? The Jews. They were the ones who had corrupted society. They were the ones that they were trying to do away with. And as he went to talk to the cook, the cook's like, hold up. You want Sabbath off and now you don't want my sausage and you don't want the pork that I'm going to serve you? I know what you are. You're a Jew in disguise. He said, no way. I'm not giving you that. So Franz had to figure out his own solution to that. He ended up... uh, he was billeted or, or staying in a private house that was across from a dairy. And so he'd take his sausages, he'd take his meat, and he would go over to the dairy and he'd say, would you trade me for milk and cheese? And so he got what he could get in exchange for that. Another thing happened at Christmas. He went to a, a Christmas party that was required for his entire regiment. And as they were going into the Christmas party, he's walking in carrying a bottle. And the guy's like, hang on, you can't bring your own drinks in here. And he said, I don't drink. Um, this is non-alcoholic. And the guy's like, okay, you can bring it in. And so he goes in and he doesn't drink during the entire um, party. He's one of the few people that was sober. Well, within a short period of time, he's awarded the medal. I'm not even going to try to say that. If you want to say it, uh, please tell me later on how you say that. But the medal, let me tell you what it means. It means... He learned for being an outstanding moral guide to the entire division. Because he chose to be sober, because of his high morals, suddenly people began to realize there's something different about this guy. There's something different about how he lives. And and this began to set him apart. And you and I are called to live a set-apart life, to live a life that is different in that we trust Jesus and follow Jesus wherever he leads us in our lives. Well, he was placed on the front lines before long. He was put into a bridge-building brigade, 699, and they went up into Ukraine, interestingly enough, and they were on their way to Russia. And in Russia, they were bridge-builders, and they were going up into Russia, and they began experiencing lots of casualties. Their goal was to take over the oil reserves in Russia. And if at all possible, to be able to bring back um, the oil and and to capture that, to have that resource for themselves. Well, you remember, there's something different about Franz. He's, He's recognized by his superiors that there's something different about him. And so one day... Uh, one of his officers, the, the commanding officer actually, called him in to his office. 
And as he called him in, Franz had his little pocket Bible with him like he did. And he said, Franz, are we going to win the war? (laughs) You imagine what a loaded question that is. I mean, this is the military of Hitler, right? Who's gassing people who don't believe the way that he believes. Who has said that I'm going to set up this Third Reich, a thousand years of prosperity. I'm setting up this, this, this new kingdom and we're going to take over the world. And his commanding officer asks him, are we going to win the war? How would you answer? How would I answer in that moment? Well, they had this unofficial rule in their regiment. He prayed for a second and he said, okay, is this an official question or an unofficial question? And as he asked that, the commanding officer took off his hat. And that was the signal that this was an unofficial conversation. And so Franz took off his hat. And he opened his Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Does the Bible practically apply to our lives today? Does it have meaning and value for our lives today? You see, Daniel, as he goes to interpret this dream... He believes that there is something important for Nebuchadnezzar here. And I think it wasn't just for Nebuchadnezzar back 2,500 years ago, but it's for us too. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king, Daniel went on to say. And imagine as Franz is breaking this down to his commanding officer, there's this statue, there's this rock that smashes it, and then this is the interpretation. It would take boldness to be able to say what he has to say to the commanding officer. He's going to have to tell him, I don't think that that's what the Bible reveals is going to happen. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Talking to Nebuchadnezzar. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So far, is this a good conversation to have with your king? Yeah, this is good. Unfortunately, he's got to keep going. But after you. And Nebuchadnezzar, I imagine, is like, hold up. <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> you know who, who I am? After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. You saw the decreasing value in metals. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So you imagine as Franz breaks this down and he says, this is what what is happening here. The head of gold, it represents Babylon. He said the the arms and the chest of silver. This represents the Medo-Persian army, Persia, that will overtake you eventually. Well, actually, sorry. Franz is telling the the commanding officer this, right? And then the, the bronze thighs, this represents Greece. Franz tells this to his commanding officer. And then he says the the legs of iron, this represents Rome. But then you notice how there's the feet that are partially of clay and partially of iron. And they're not able to cleave to each other. And he begins to break down to this commanding officer. This is what has taken place in history because although there were these kingdoms that came one after another, What happened to Rome? Rome was overtaken by barbarian tribes who overran them. And after they overran them, there was no longer one nation that was able to hold together after that. And just like the prophecy said, people have tried, he pointed out, to do this. Charles V has attempted to unite these nations. Charlemagne attempted to unite these nations. Napoleon attempted to unite these nations. And at the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon, as he lost that battle, he said something fascinating. He said, God Almighty is too powerful for me. (laughs) I don't have what it takes. He knew these prophecies. He knew that he was warring against the purposes of God. But, But I want you to find something fresh today. 
As some of you have heard this story, a lot of times some of you haven't before. That's okay. I've discovered something in looking at this story. The story is fresh for us today. There's something powerful for us today. Now, you notice that in recent history, we've experienced uh, the attempted unification of Europe in various ways, and one of those is the European Union. And what happened not too long ago to the European Union? Brexit. Let's watch a quick video by a, a couple Europeans. It's going to have huge ramifications which we can't really predict or foresee. Some we can, but many we can't. But at the moment, it's hard to see these many different countries with their very different histories, including histories of enmity to each other. It's very hard to see them being able to cleave together. The European Union's origin is, of course, in World War II, this extraordinary catastrophe. A generation of people, uh, Europeans, who say, we cannot do this again. There was an understanding that if you want to preserve peace, you need to have some kind of economic system that doesn't cause hatred, that doesn't cause rivalry. Many people won't understand or know that religion was actually a very important ingredient in the establishment of the European economic community. There is still a religious element to much of the debate in the European Union. In the early 2000s, the then president of the European Commission, Romano Prodi, actually published a book. It was in Italian, but the translated title means An Idea of Europe. And he said, what can hold these many different countries? It's not enough for the elites to propose a political union. There has to be something cultural. And he said, the one thing that all Europeans have in common, the one thing that combines us all together, is loyalty to the church. But he was Italian. What did he mean? He meant the Roman Catholic Church. That's the story of people trying to make Europe into a powerhouse and yet failing again and again. Think about Napoleon. Everything looked perfect and yet a decade and it fell. Think about Hitler. It failed. Franz sat in his commanding officer's uh, office and told him this. The commanding officer said, can I have your Bible? When he completed it, he handed him his Bible. He said, I want you to come back here at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Imagine the thoughts that might have been racing through Franz's mind at that moment in time. But this isn't the end of the vision. Uh, The interpretation continues in verse 44. And in the days of these kings. Now, here's the thing. I have focused so much of my life on the statue thinking that the statue is, is, is important to understand. And it is, because we could base our life upon the fact that this is how history has unfolded, and we can trust the Bible, we can read the Bible, we can come to the Bible as a trustworthy book to live our lives by, based upon the fact that it's accurate, it's predicted how the world would unfold for 2,500 years. But notice the emphasis in this dream. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume, what does that say? All these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Hold up, I, I thought, how does that work? If we're talking about Babylon, we're talking about Medo-Persia, we're talking about Greece, we're talking about Rome... How does God set up a kingdom that destroys Babylon, that destroys Medo-Persia, that destroys Greece, that destroys Rome? What, what is this talking about, and what does that look like? Well, let's keep going. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Notice, again, this repetition that What type of stone was it? It's cut out of the mountain without hands. There's there's no human involvement here. It's not a graven image like the statue that is all of the various metals that are graven by hands. This is cut out without hands. This is a repetition of that. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. It did this to all of the kingdoms. So in what sense does the rock set up an entirely different kingdom that is able to overcome Babylon? When Babylon was overthrown, I thought by, wasn't it the Medes and the Persians? Well, here's the thing. It's a whole lot easier 
to defeat an army, to kill enough people, to subjugate a a society. It's a whole lot easier to do that than to defeat an idea. Do you know that? Uh, Just look at what happened with Hitler's army. So you have the Nazis, right? Um, And we unleashed these terrible forces of the nuclear bombs and World War II came to an end. And as World War II came to an end, there's no more Nazis, right? There's no Nazis today. Unfortunately, there are still people who hold to these same ideas. You see, you can't kill an idea. You can't use force. There's not a gun big enough to get rid of an idea. But God's kingdom is going to break into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. Forever and ever, there will never be any more of this. And notice how it goes on. The great God has made known to you, to the king, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. God is letting you know that that this rock is going to fill up the whole planet, and there's going to be only one kingdom, only one idea, only one way of living. God's going to set up an eternal kingdom. Notice that this is a repetition of what we saw, the emphasis back in verses 34 and on. You watched while a stone was cut out. How? Without hands, there's no human involvement in this, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors. How many of you wish that you could just snap your fingers and the chaos on this planet would disappear? You could snap your fingers and Putin's out of the picture. He's he's smashed and gone away, right? And you could snap your fingers. And what's happening in North Korea? No longer are you going to see that anymore. Some of the chaos that we see in South South America, in Mexico, you see in Africa. You could snap your fingers in, in the Middle East, and suddenly, all of those things are gone in an instant. That's that's what we long for. We long for these ideas that are causing such strife on this planet to be done away with. And this is the promise of the rock. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. There's absolutely nothing left of these ideas of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, of Greece, of Rome. Gone forever. Somebody needs to say hallelujah. This is incredibly good news. This whole marching on of one kingdom being with a bigger army, destroying another kingdom and getting bigger weapons in order to finally, we're at the place where we've got nuclear weapons and we've got cold war and we've got the the possibility of blowing ourselves up. This isn't the answer and God has a better answer. Now, so this stone cut out without hands, it has a precedent in the Old Testament. Daniel, as he's interpreting this, I imagine that his mind is tracking. He's thinking, hang on. Stone cut out without hands? There's two of those in the book, in the, in the, the Torah, the five books of Moses. Notice, uh, these are the two at least the, that I've come across. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking, that's God, with, with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Notice Exodus 32 verse 16. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. How much human endeavoring went into these tablets? They were cut out without human hands. They were divinely inspired and written down. And, and this law, we're told in Romans thirteen ten. this law, love is the fulfilling of this law. Because love does no harm to a neighbor. And Jesus said in Matthew 22 that if you love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, that these are the two great commandments on which hang all the law and the prophets. This law of love, it has a divine origin. Self-sacrificing love alone is what uh, has this beautiful picture that comes straight from God. Okay, so this is the one rock that we find that is cut out without hands. And we can also tie in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 that says, The end of the law is Christ. The entire goal, the, the telos of the law, where it is pointing us to is Jesus. And we could tie in Galatians that says, the law is a tutor, and that tutor was to lead us to 
Jesus, to Christ. Here's the second uh, rock that was cut out without hands, the rocks. Exodus 20, verse 25. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. Don't cut the stones that you make the altar out of. For if you use a tool on it, you have profaned it. Don't touch the altar. That is something that has to be given uh, no human contact. What did the altar represent? It represented Jesus. His self-sacrificing love. It represented that God loves humanity so much that there's nothing humanity can add. God himself would come down and take on human flesh. He'd walk among us. He'd live out the law perfectly. He would demonstrate to us what this life could look like. Jesus is that rock cut out without hands. And then he would go to the cross. And on the cross... He would demonstrate what that altar was designed to do, that God and God alone can provide the reconciliation that has to happen with the enmity that is in our hearts towards God. He alone could bring us back to God. He alone could take our sin upon himself. So Jesus, Jesus quotes Daniel in a place that I didn't realize before. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now he's quoting Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's so much fun. Uh, Dell and Ellen gave me this little invitation that they found in their historical records on files of our church. Back in the 1970s, we had the Templeton Hills cornerstone celebration and invitations went out to invite people to our cornerstone celebration. What's a cornerstone? It's that that first stone that makes a building. If you look around, there's a lot of stones or a lot of bricks here in this building. And, And there's the picture that the chief cornerstone was neglected. It was thrown aside. The builders had rejected it. But it's going to become the chief cornerstone. It's going to become that rock that fills up everything until there's nothing left except for the principles of Jesus and his self-sacrificing love. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, because you're rejecting me, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And then notice Jesus quoting Daniel. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will... Grind him to powder. Jesus says, what I've come to do is, as I give myself in self-sacrificing love, what I do on the cross, that is so powerful that people will either come and be broken, they'll come and repent, they'll turn to God, turn away from sin, or else they'll be ground to powder. That's the picture of what Jesus describes himself as, the rock, We sing that song, Rock of Ages. So he's quoting from Psalm 118. Notice this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's go back and see the context just a few verses before this as this messianic psalm that Jesus is quoting about himself. Notice what the Messiah is going through and what he says. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in politicians. Oh, hang on. Princes. The word is rulers, politicians, rulers, kings, presidents, whoever. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to trust in politicians. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. How does he destroy them? In the name of the Lord. What does the name of the Lord represent? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in goodness and truth, steadfast in mercy. He's the one that's forgiving iniquity and by no means leaving the guilty unpunished. Now, Isaiah chapter 8, well, as we think about this idea that the Messiah is going to put a final destruction upon all of this uh, chaos that we see on this planet, we see the picture of this in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Jesus is finally coming back. It's the second coming. It's, it's when that rock is finally fully going to be established on this planet. And as he's coming back as a conquering king, riding on a white horse, he finally has a sword with him. 
And do you know where the sword is? Where is it? It's in his mouth. Have you ever tried to stab somebody with a sword in your mouth? Have you ever tried to cut somebody apart with a sword in your mouth? It reminds me of what Jesus said. He said, I don't judge you, but this is what will judge you. My word is going to judge you in the end. It comes out of his mouth. It's the truth that he speaks because there's something more important than crushing people. And that is crushing the ideas of Satan that were hatched back in this great controversy that started in heaven. Where Lucifer said, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to become like God. I will go up. Choosing selfishness and pride and saying, this is what God is like. The only way to do away with those principles. Do you think God couldn't have destroyed Satan at that moment? Think God couldn't have done away with Nebuchadnezzar. He could have done away with Alexander the Great. In just a flash, this God who holds up the universe, who has so much power. It's not about whether God has enough physical force. What he's looking for is to destroy the principles of selfishness and to establish his law as, of love as trustworthy throughout eternity. He's leading us to a place where we can finally trust him forever and ever. But the world's full of craziness, and I'm kind of worried about all the wild stuff that's going on in the world. Notice the other place that Jesus is basically alluding to, or maybe that Isaiah is actually quoting from Psalm 118. He will be as a sanctuary, talking about the Messiah, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, we get this picture brought up by Isaiah. Now notice what Isaiah says. A few verses before that in verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. This isn't saying that conspiracies aren't going on. Did Cyrus have a conspiracy to overthrow Babylon? Yes, he went in through the river gates. He went in to overthrow Babylon. There was a conspiracy going on. But he says, don't focus on what you're worried about. The conspiracies out there. You're worried about the global elites. You're looking in the wrong place. Don't say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Why? Why can I not be afraid of Putin? Why don't I have to be afraid of dictators like Hitler? Why don't I have to be afraid of these evil men? Because the Lord himself will be a sanctuary. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But if I choose to turn, He'll be my sanctuary. He'll be your sanctuary. He'll shelter you through any time of trouble. And many among them will stumble. They will fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Now notice what he says. The solution, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. You want a rock solid foundation for your life? Choose the law of God. You want a rock-solid foundation on which to build your life? Choose God's self-sacrificing love. Jesus himself said it. The wise man who builds his house upon the rock, he's the one who hears my words and who does them. Not in his own strength. Remember, this is the rock that's cut out without hands. It's something that only God can do in reproducing himself inside of us as we look and look and look to the loving character of God. Prophets and Kings, page 500, says, In his law, God has made known the principles that underlaw all true prosperity, both of nations and of individuals. You see, this isn't just about Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. This is about you and me. The same principles that were worked out in these nations are worked out in your and my life every single day. To the Israelites, Moses declared of this law, This is your wisdom and your understanding. It is not a vain thing for you because it is your life. This law itself is your life. The blessings thus assured to Israel are on the same conditions and in the same degree assured to every nation and to how many? Every individual under the broad heavens. We serve a God of justice. And this God of justice gave the same parameters for Nebuchadnezzar, for Cyrus and Darius, for Alexander the Great, for all of the Caesars, for every person who's ever ruled, and for you and me on our day-to-day lives. And Jesus summarized it like this in Matthew seven twelve: Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. This is absolutely everything for us is how we treat each other. Let's go ahead and and pick up the story. You remember that Franz was told to come back 
at 9 a.m. the next morning. I'm going to let his grandson pick up the story and tell you what happened. The next day he showed up at 9 o'clock and uh, only to see that there were two other high-ranking officers on other, either side of his commanding officer. And at that moment as he walked into the office, he thought, oh no, for sure I've been betrayed. But then his commanding officer took off his hat told the other two officers what their arrangement was and that everything that would be spoken would be not repeated again and handed back my grandfather his Bible and my grandfather opened it up to Daniel 2 as he was told that he would have to tell that Bible study all over again and so that's what he did. He went through the Bible study, went through each of those medals on that, on that image and as he went through those medals he talked about the dates and every time he mentioned an empire like Babylon and the dates of 605 to 539 he noticed some communication going between his officer and the other two officers, kind of imperceptible, but there. And he continued the Bible study and came to the end and said, we are now living in the time period of the feet of iron mixed with clay, and they do not cleave to one another, and for that reason, we will not have a unified European or world empire that's going to last a thousand years. Hitler's Third Reich cannot last a thousand years. And as he delivered that, that message, there was silence in the room. He was dismissed again, and as he was leaving, the commanding officer said, oh, by the way, I should introduce you to the other two gentlemen here. And he said, this is, this is a captain, and prior to his, his time here in the German army and his drafting into the German army, he was a professor of history. And then he was introduced to the other gentleman, too, who had been a professor of history as well in his civilian days just before the war. He says, both of these men have corroborated all the dates that you provided in the sequence and the history that you've provided here. Thank you very much. Several months later, in May of 1945, the war ended. And as they were now faced with the whole uh, issue of retreating and going back to Germany, what had taken them months and years to accomplish, uh, the big question was, how are they, how are they going to make it? But unknown to my grandfather and to the rest of the unit, this commanding officer, having been convinced several months earlier, had rationed every ounce of gasoline, every bit of food possible, because he knew that this war would end soon, based on that Bible study, and that they would have to retreat. You can live your life based upon the Word of God. Did you catch that? His commanding officer believed the Bible. And he began to ration supplies. He began to, to be careful with the oil, to be careful with the food supplies. And because of that, they were able to retreat. They were able to make it back to safety when others had a much more difficult time. You too can base your life around the reality of who this God is. But here's the thing. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Europe. These are the ways that the kingdom came along. And we know that God sets up kings and God takes down kings. Daniel said that. But we also know in Hosea chapter 8 verse 4 that God said, You put kings, but not by my choosing. You appointed princes, but, but I didn't come up with them. You know, we like to, to point out that Daniel says, You set up kings and you take them down when it's our person in control. And we say, Yeah, definitely. God put that one there. But when it's a president that we're not so sure about, then we're like, well, hang on. Let's find a solution to this, and this thing because God didn't put that guy there. I'm pretty sure about that. What is the reality of how God is working through human history to establish a principle that will last forever and ever? I love how this summarizes it. Education, page 176, it breaks down in 177. It breaks down each of these kingdoms. Instead of being a protector of men, Babylon became a proud and cruel oppressor. We're going to find out in Daniel chapter 4 that, that God had set up Babylon in order to minister to the nations. He'd given them the role now that Israel had had. He'd placed the crown from Israel and put it onto Babylon. And Babylon squandered that and became a proud and cruel oppressor. The Medes and the Persians, prophets and kings, page 501 says the realm was visited by the wrath of heaven because in it God's what? God's law had been trampled underfoot. Do you see what takes place when, when the principles of God's law are not followed in any human life or in any human government? It results in destruction. Wickedness, blasphemy, and corruption prevailed. The kingdoms that followed, meaning uh, Medo-Persia, after Medo-Persia was Greece and Rome and then the divided kingdoms, were even more base and corrupt, and these sank lower and still lower in the scale of moral worth. 
Education, page 177, says the nations rejected God's principles and in this rejection, rots or brought about their own destruction. You see, God has designed the reality that we live in in such a way that if we live according to the law, it benefits our lives. If we don't live according to the law, it works for destruction. The wages of sin itself are death. Only that which is bound up with his purposes and expresses his character can endure forever. It's in the name of the Lord that the destruction will come. It is in his character alone that we'll find an enduring kingdom. And the good news is that one day, Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The entire world and also everyone that's lost, everyone that's saved, all of the angels will all bow the knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That his system is the right way. Even though they don't even want to live in that system, they will acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's incredibly good news to know that the ideas of this rebellion will be quenched fully and completely forever by the cross of Jesus Christ, by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. His principles are the only steadfast things that our world knows. So, Back in boot camp, Franz, he had become very good with his weapons. He was so good, in fact, that he was the top sharpshooter with his rifle. Well, he ended up becoming a clerk. Now, remember, what was the last part of his prayer? Help me not to kill anybody. How do you do that in World War II on the front lines? That help me not to kill anybody, God. I want to live by your law, which says thou shalt not murder. I want to live this out. You know, fascinating, on the other side of the conflict, there was another guy in World War II doing the same exact thing. Do you remember his name? Desmond Dawson, the hero of Hacksaw Ridge. He's saving hundreds of lives, likely, in the midst of war and choosing not to bear a weapon. Well, Here's what Franz ended up doing. He was a sharpshooter. He then was promoted to clerk, and so he was able to carry a pistol. And then he found out that they were going to be put on the front lines. And so one day, he took some soap that he had, and he took some chocolate that he had, and he took his pistol, and he went to a carpenter. And at the carpenter's, he took the chocolate, and he took the soap, and he said, will you take this, and will you make a model of my pistol and paint it black and paint it brown and make it look just like this pistol. And he took that wooden pistol and he placed it in his holster. Then he took that pistol and he walked to the river and he took his pistol and he threw it into the middle of the river. (laughs) Right before going to the front lines, he's going with a wooden pistol in his holster. You know, it's amazing to hear the story that as they were finally surrendering their weapons at the end of World War II, and they're, they're there at the end of World War II. Now, it's pretty fascinating that from his regiment, there were 1,200 men. Out of those 1,200 original men in World War II, seven survived. Can you imagine the shock uh, of his fellow compatriots who were there as they're surrendering their weapons, and as they go and they're throwing it on the pile? He said, as he threw... His wooden pistol on the pile. Somebody said, what is that? (laughs) It's like, oh, this has been my pistol for the past few years. This is what was defending me on the front lines. The Acts of the Apostles, page 12 says, earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power. Let's get a bigger weapon and we will finish this. God has all power in heaven and earth. He's not waiting for a bigger display of force. That's not how he's going to set up his kingdom forever and ever. But from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is banished. David Asterisk put it this way. The stone cut out without hands speaks not of succession, but of a total reconfiguration of reality. It's not just another kingdom that's set up. It's an entirely different kingdom. It's cut out without hands. It's a kingdom of self-sacrificing love. It's a kingdom of the God who comes close to his disciples and bends down on one knee and washes their feet. He again worded it like this. The stone cut out without hands speaks not of succession, but of a total reconfiguration of power. 
The God who takes his power and uses it for humility and service and love and laying down his life rather than choosing to take lives. And that alone can destroy the ideas that have led to all of these kingdoms oppressing people throughout history. And this alone will lead to success in our lives as we truly live according to the law of God. I want to invite you to read this story. There's a book by uh, one of his daughters, the, the one that was born while he was in war, Susie Hazel Mundy, wrote A Thousand Shall Fall, a fascinating book that I encourage you to pick up and read. You can read a far more details about the life of Franz Hazel. If you'd like help getting a copy, let me know, and I, I will do my best to help you get a copy. Or I want to invite you, if you want to know a little bit more about uh, the, the dates and the things involved with the statue in Daniel chapter 2, go to truthlink.org, or we have a few of the studies in the back. We have more that we can bring out And study number one of this series actually goes through this image in particular. But more than anything else, remember, is this a dream about a statue? Is that the point of this dream? The point is the rock. The point is the one who can set up a kingdom who lives forever and ever. The point is Jesus. May his principles be our principles. May we live it out and may we live lives of faith like Daniel did. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've promised that, that the chaos that we see going on in Ukraine, the chaos that we see going on on this planet, you're going to put an end to it, a final end. Not just by destroying people, but by doing away with the ideas, the ideas that have led to all of the chaos. Thank you for promising that you will put a final end to sin. And God, I just want to invite you to impress upon my heart right now, each of our hearts right now. Maybe there's something we need to surrender to you today. Some part of your your law we haven't been trusting. Some part of your instructions we haven't been following because we don't trust your promises. Father, help us to stand on the rock to trust Jesus with everything. Thank you that you've proven yourself so faithful time and time again. May we trust you in the circumstances that we face every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.